Welcome back to DC EKG with Joe Grogan and Eric Euland. On DC EKG, we try and diagnose various policy maladies afflicting the body politic and come up with some prescriptions to try and fix them. We want to thank John Swartaki or CZ for being our sponsor with Survivors for Solutions. He's also our producer here. He's been advocating at length for patients of today and tomorrow to make sure that America's biopharmaceutical ecosystem continues to bring new treatments and cures to the American people. Today, we're joined by Adam Thier, who is an expert on artificial intelligence. This is going to be a really good conversation uh, because Adam has written 10 books, I think, on various policy issues. He's a veteran of several prestigious think tanks, um, Cato, Mercatus, Heritage, been around Washington, D.C. and Washington, D.C. policy. And he's got sort of a, a creative roving interest, I would say. So he's developed expertise in a number of different areas, and he's seen a lot of different evolutions of policy in different areas. And I think what's going on in artificial intelligence right now is clearly an area that is worthy of dispassionate and objective discussion. So Adam, before we get into the policy areas and what's going on, why don't you, if you would, just give people a little bit of a framing of what is meant by artificial intelligence, because I think people are confused about what it is. So let's just talk a little bit about how you would define artificial intelligence, and then we could talk about its opportunities and its terrors. <laughs> sure, and thanks again for having me. Um, so first and foremost, it's important to understand that the definition of artificial intelligence is a matter of some uh, contention. Um, in fact, there was a general account U.S. General Accountability Office report in 2019 that famously noted that there is no consensus definition of artificial intelligence, even among experts in the field, um, and that it is a matter of uh, some great debate and evolution. That being said, I think generically we can talk about AI as the exhibition of reasoning skills by machine, um, and it is heavily dependent upon machine learning technologies, data science, data collection, and high-powered computational systems. And what we see today, and the reason that AI is attracting so much interest after really a half century of it being around, but uh, never really discussed this uh, in this much detail, is because we see the confluence of many different technological revolutions coming together to create the computational or AI revolution. We have the power of semiconductors, personal computing, cloud computing, wireless and broadband services, um, uh, various internet technologies, and so on and so forth. They've all converged. They've come together. And that sort of convergence has led to finally the promise of AI becoming evident um, in terms of real-world products and services that uh, people find both exciting and, yes, a bit terrifying. Let's take another step to the side for, the se for a second and talk about theories of regulation. That is to say, do we, uh, as a country, or are there different views as far as the government can only allow uh, certain technologies to blossom and grow on their own? Do they need sort of pre-approval permission from the government? Um, how do we normally approach these issues and how maybe is AI differing um, from how you might expect uh, the government to treat it? Yes, that's a wonderful question and an important one. It's something that I've spent 32 years studying, in fact, and writing about uh, in, my, uh, in my work. 
for various academic institutions and think tanks because when you get right down to it, um, there are really two overarching governance visions for any emerging technology. One of, one of which we've always had a name for the governance vision. Um, it's called the precautionary principle. And this really came from the field of food and drug law and environmental law and regulation. It's the idea that basically new innovations and innovators are treated as sort of suspect or what I call guilty until proven innocent, that you have to seek someone's blessing or permission before you can do something bold and daring and different in, in that field. The precautionary principle is premised on the general idea of better to be safe than sorry and and preemptively take a lot of regulatory steps before we allow new services and applications into the wild. So what's the opposite of the precautionary principle? Um, it didn't really have a good name for a long time. People had different names for it. What I did in 2016 is I wrote a book where I suggested that a phrase from uh, the world of internet technology could be utilized to describe this alternative governance framing or paradigm. And that's permissionless innovation. And permissionless innovation, again, nobody really knows who coined this term. I certainly didn't. But it's the idea that basically you are innocent until proven guilty, that you should not have to seek some sort of prior blessing from some unelected faceless bureaucrat in Washington or some state or international capital before you launch a new product or service. Permissionless innovation is not anarchy. It is premised upon a, frame, a framework of different types of laws, uh, including property rights, contract rights, uh, other types of ex post enforcement measures. But the crucial thing there is the ex post nature of enforcement, which is that we allow trial and error to go forward under a permissionless innovation mindset. And then we see where the problems develop and we deal with them usually after the fact. So there you have the two broad governance visions, the precautionary principle versus permissionless innovation. Of course, there is a broad spectrum of governance options in between them and even to the edges of them, right? You could go to the opposite. You could go to the far edges of uh, the precautionary principle. You could just flat bans, like no technology allowed, period, full stop. The precautionary principle doesn't say that. It basically says, well, we'll allow it, but only under certain limited circumstances. Likewise, to the right of permissionless innovation would be basically anarchy, like anything goes. You can just develop anything anywhere, anytime, and there's no repercussions. But realistically, we don't start there. We start with something that looks more like the precautionary principle or permissionless innovation. And we have a lot of good examples of this, even in the field of information and communications technology, where you had for many, many years, newspapers had the gold standard of First Amendment protection and sort of permissionless innovation. Anybody could go out and sort of start a newspaper as long as you had a printing press, right? You didn't need a license to do that. And that was the case from the founding of the, uh, the American Republic on down. But on the other hand, along came something called television and radio broadcasting. We took a completely different approach. We applied the precautionary principle. You needed a license to operate in the public interest. This was a radical break with the newspaper tradition. So there you have an American history long before the internet came along, this conflict divisions, if you will, about how to regulate information and communications technologies. And when the internet came along, we made a series of choices in the mid nineties to basically treat it more like newspapers, to give it the gold standard of, of first amendment protection and, and uh, sort of digital freedom. And basically we took a permissionless approach. We didn't call it such, but the Clinton administration and Congress worked together in a bipartisan way to, a, to basically treat it as a, what I call a born free technology, as opposed to a born and regulatory captivity technology. So we didn't box it right into an innovation cage and treat it like broadcasting. We instead said, no, we're going to give you a more flexible, bottom-up sort of approach and see what happens. 
And I think the results speak for themselves personally. America is now a global leader in digital technology services. All the household names across the globe in this field are American companies. And by contrast, other countries, especially like the European Union, uh, an entire continent in this case, took the precautionary approach. And I always challenge my students and other crowds when I'm speaking, like, name me a leading digital technology innovator headquartered in the European Union today. <laughs> they really struggle with it. Some of them will say something like, you know, Spotify or a few others, but it, it's very hard. And that's because I think they got their governance vision wrong and the United States got it right. So Adam laying out the, the vision of permissionless innovation, precautionary principle, and to your point, now people are beginning to focus significantly on AI as AI, regulators, policymakers in Washington, places and state capitals around the country. What do you think is the, what are, I guess, better way to put it, are the sorts of key questions that policymakers should be running through in their mind as they figure out what, if anything, to do from a legislative or regulatory standpoint when it comes to AI? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think this is the real challenge with going about cre uh, creating a governance regime for artificial intelligence. It's such a broad-based field. Indeed, it's not a field, period. It's a field of fields. Uh, Edison described uh, electricity once uh, as a field of fields, like many different issues. It's not just one. Whatever one thinks about that being true for electricity, it is absolutely true of artificial intelligence. And so uh, I wrote a piece uh, earlier this year called Seven Fault Lines for Artificial Intelligence Policy and just tried to identify at least get it into seven buckets. And it probably fell well short. There's probably far, far more. But you could talk about, just to give a few examples, the privacy implications of artificial intelligence, security implications, safety implications. And when you talk about safety, is it physical safety or are you talking about mental safety? Uh, you could talk about jobs. This is the oldest of concerns about automation technologies and AI is like, will it take away all of our jobs. That's a huge bucket of issues. You could talk on national security and policing efforts involving artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning. Um, we could get into a, a variety of other uh, specific tech, tech, uh, technocratic sort of sectoral specific concerns. What does AI mean for medicine? What does it mean for environment and energy? What does it mean for finance? And this is why every single agency and regulator under the sun is now all of a sudden trying to become an AI regulator because they're saying, well, this is invading our space. And so we need to get a piece of this. And so all of those concerns are valid for policymakers to concern uh, themselves with. But the question is, how do you cover all of them comprehensively? And the key debate that's unfolding in the United States and across the globe today is that question. Do we try to regulate artificial intelligence in an extraordinarily broad-based way as a general purpose technology? Or do we instead take what I regard as the better approach, which is a more of a sectoral targeted approach that breaks it down into smaller pieces and said like, yes, there are many valid concerns, but let's take them one piece at a time in a more modular fashion and build up AI policy from the bottom up. Unfortunately, that's not very sexy to policymakers. They want big silver bullet solutions. They want grandiose schemes. They want to come up with a new AI agency and a new AI licensing scheme and AI liability. What does that even mean? Because AI is different in every single field. I mean, the field of like AI and insurance versus AI and hiring versus AI and medicine versus AI and, you know, energy environment, four totally different bodies of law and sets of concerns. It would be, I, in my opinion, I, I know I'm jumping ahead of the curve here in our, in our talk, but it would be a serious mistake if we took that sort of an approach and tried to take sort of an everything in the kitchen sink approach to handling it all with one big omnibus sort of regulatory uh, regime. 
So policymakers in Washington, the Senate's run a series of conversations with, to your point, a variety of outside leaders in various sectors when it comes to AI and its application. They're wrapping that up here at the end of 2023. Uh, their goal is obviously to, to write a piece of legislation. At the same time, regulators are trying to get in on the action, partly as empire building. It's not just because all this is insinuating into operations that they're responsible for. If they can end up being the lead regulator, hey, so much the better for them. But as Congress now seriously begins to think about whether or not it should write a bill, taking your point that there shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all solution, how do you scope something that ensures there is this ability to innovate and create and allow a lot of different ideas to flourish within some broad principles for safety and operations without impeding or actually extinguishing the promise of AI? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And again, as I alluded to, I think the better approach is a baby steps approach where we, we, take a, we break down the issue into smaller chunks. And we take a look at where we need to fill some gaps with policies to address things that aren't already addressed by the extensive amount of sort of regulatory edifice that we already have in the United States. You know, just on that point, I, I always try to remind audiences when I'm talking, you know, and I'm talking about like, should there be a new uh, agency for X or a bill for Y? I always say, you know, hey, folks, let me remind you that there are at the federal level in the United States, 434 different federal departments. And there are 15 cabinet level, high level agencies. There are 2.2 million civilian employees working for the federal government. You better believe that all of those bodies and agencies and people are interested in dealing with AI in some way, shape, or form, for better or for worse. But you know what? Why don't we start there? Why don't we actually figure out who's doing what and just sort of inventory what our extensive federal regulatory infrastructure is up to on AI, as opposed to just jumping out of the and We ground. haven't done that? No, yet. we haven't, actually. There, there have been not a wow. serious effort to catalog it. There have been informal ones, including my own efforts, to just pay, basically try to keep tabs on the uh, extraordinary amount of activity at different agencies, uh, every alphabet soup agencies involved in AI some way, shape, or form now. And and. And for better or for worse, that should be our approach. We should actually say, like, how do we have existing laws and policies that might already cover this? And how can the courts cover this? And so on and so forth. So a, a good piece of legislation would probably start with just, like, good housekeeping. Like, what are we doing? Is it working? If not, how do we correct for it? How do we fill some gaps? And there might be gaps. I've identified some in my work where we need to legislate. Taking the opposite approach of trying to come from the top down and regulate in a, in a new whole cloth fashion everything under the algorithmic sun it is an enormous undertaking that our current highly dysfunctional Congress is not well equipped to handle. I would just remind listeners that you know we've at the federal level been debating the idea of federal baseline privacy legislation for at least a dozen years, maybe more like 15, and we've gotten absolutely nowhere on that. And that's had a lot of bipartisan support, at least to preempt the states, if nothing else, on privacy and data issues. Uh, we've had for many years driverless car legislation. Driverless cars are an AI issue. Why not take a more narrow approach of just looking at driverless cars and saying, let's legislate there and have a federal framework? That makes more sense. But we can't get that done. That's been in Congress now for at least three or four sessions. They don't even reintroduced it this year. So our current Congress is a just very highly dysfunctional. And B, it's up against the so-called pacing problem. The pacing problem is what academics refer to as the problem of the fact that technology evolves very rapidly, sometimes so fast that it's exponentially evolving. And yet policy in Congress evolves incrementally at best. 
and the gap between the growth of technological you know, technologies change and Congress's ability to respond to it is called the pacing problem. The pacing problem is the unrelenting reality of modern technological governance questions. And in the light of that and the highly dysfunctional uh, nature of our current Congress, it, they would be wise to go back to basics and look at taking a more targeted approach to issues on a narrow sort of one-by-one -one basis, as opposed to, again, the grandiose schemes that Schumer and Blumenthal and many other senators envision. So I like the concept of measuring, because if you don't measure, you can't manage the old business adage. When it comes to gaps that you talk about, you know, and again, keeping legislation small, but it's some of the gaps that currently exist, where are a few of those things and what could be done in relation to some of those more discrete issues that you've identified? Yeah, absolutely. So there's quite a few. Um, some merit more attention than others. Uh, one of the most controversial ones, but one that I think we could get some legislation on, is this question of like, how... Uh, how are our laws and policies and institutions equipped to deal with algorithmic uh, deception and disinformation? Now, let's be clear. We do have laws in the books, including some very good ones uh, at the Federal Trade Commission uh, to, to enforce unfair and deceptive practices under Section 5 of the U.S. Uh, Federal Trade, and Commission, uh, Trade Commission Act. We also have state and local laws in governing fraud, deception, so on and so forth. But there's a different question about deception at a sort of macro or meta level that could be fueled by algorithmic and computational technologies. And that's a really, really hard problem. And this is something we've been debating even before we were debating it with regards to AI, just the internet more broadly, and especially foreign actors or bad actors fueling disinformation campaigns against the United States. But at a, that's at a macro level, but then there's the micro level. Like how do you deal with individuals utilizing AI to potentially harm other people through deception, the so-called deep fake technologies? Um, or like uh, other types of things that might be utilized to blackmail people or institutions. These are hard problems. We do have some laws that can handle them, but we might need to tweak them to say like, look, when it involves an algorithmic system operating at scale to engage in these deceptive or, or, or disinformation technology uh, techniques, we might need a new type of remedy to that. I'm open to that. Let's have that debate. We're having it. We just have to deal with First Amendment ramifications of some of those issues, which are profound. But that's a debate worth having. Likewise, I think there's a legitimate role for Congress, as I already mentioned, to deal with like, how do you deal with a new with an old technology that is all of, all of a sudden being reinvented because of the application of computational and algorithmic uh, technologies? The car is the perfect example. You know, um, we are now in a world where we can get into a vehicle, and I did did this recently in Phoenix, and be chauffeured around the streets of a major city uh, without anybody at the wheel. I mean, it's a remarkable thing. We still don't have any federal policy for that. We have some patchworks of state and local policies, but we probably need some sort of overarching federal rules, if for no other else reason, to sort of equalize or level the playing field between the states and make sure that there isn't an, an unnatural patchwork that prevents innovation from happening. But we might also need to deal with some of the liability concerns associated with who's going to pay when things go wrong in a driverless car. Um, I, I could go into more examples. Those are just three. Um, and, and medical, the medical space is another one where I'm very, very active in looking at how like the FDA and others should respond to developments in that field. And so we could go again and again and again. these. Again, this is a bottom up baby steps approach. It's what I call my Lego theory of policy. Everything's just a little building block. We can put it together and then we can sort of take it apart and try it again. 
But that's the better approach to dealing with that as opposed to trying to taking a sledgehammer of like a one size fits all top down kind of approach like some senators and, and lawmakers want. You mentioned when it came to deep fake, the balancing of First Amendment and the ability to freely express uh, perspectives, both I presume individually and as groups. How have you thought about how to ensure that people's First Amendment rights are protected in a world where, especially foreign actors, to your point, may decide what malice to set out to destabilize the United States or go after individuals or groups here domestically? I can see, for example, this terrible wave of anti-Semitism only being made worse by the abuse of technology in order to try to, to set even more people against uh, the Jewish American population. Absolutely. Wonderful question. Something I struggle with constantly because I'm pretty, I'm pretty hard nosed supporter of the first amendment and usually take an approach like, you know, always take a hands-off approach when it comes to the, the free flow of speech. Um, uh, that being said, I do not deny that there can be some serious problems here, including the ones you just identified. Um, and so disinformation and discrimination and other problems or just uh, intimidation uh, is a very real problem with uh, the proliferation of online technologies that make it easier than ever before for both in institutions, individuals, and even nation states to utilize them for um, unfortunate ends. So how do you deal with that? That's not easy. Um, there can sometimes be some targeted solutions at the margin when you can really prove that there's an egregious uh, harm against someone. If uh, free speech crosses over into intimidation and threats, then you have the ability to take action under that under current law. Um, uh, what more can be done uh, is, a, is a question of the limits of sort of like what the federal government can do in this point. One thing the federal government can do, and there's actually a bill out there by uh, uh, Representative Lisa Rochester, a Democrat, um, is something I support strongly, which is we, our, our government, our country needs to get far more serious about so-called digital literacy and the idea that we need to think about how to educate not just kids, but even adults and, and older uh, populations about the benefits and risks of these new algorithmic and computational technologies and also how to use them properly. You know, good uh, netiquette, as it's called, good etiquette with regards to how to utilize these tools. Um, people can sometimes smirk about this and say, oh, this is silly. It's dumb. You know, educational campaigns are worthless. I don't think so. In fact, in, in a book I wrote about 15 years ago, I documented uh, past government campaigns to utilize educational or, or public communication technologies or, or I'm sorry, uh, techniques by the federal government to change public attitudes or behaviors. Um, do you remember give a hoot, don't pollute, as a, you know, or uh, click it or ticket? You know, we had educational campaigns for fighting forest fires, fighting litter, getting people to buckle up when they were in a car. These changed public attitudes and educated people about risks of these things. I think that's a good strategy. I think it's good when, you know, we have institutions communicate risks and benefits. This is something that the Food and Drug Administration doesn't get enough credit for, but it doesn't try hard enough. Uh, it's done wonderful work in the field of risk communication and trying to educate uh, various populations about the various uh, benefits and or downsides of various medical devices or drugs. I'm a strong believer in that as a, as a strategy for our policymakers to utilize because education and information is always the first order solution I would look to, to address some of these concerns. It's not everything. It's got there. We have to have more and we do, but it's a good place to start the discussion. Going back to where we started the conversation around, you know, permissionless innovation versus the precautionary principle, you mentioned there aren't any European 
innovators in this space of note, um, no leading tech companies really. Um, where does Rishi Sunak get away with calling an AI summit? And why did Kamala Harris schlep over there and everybody pretend as if these guys have an industry that is worth regulating? Like, why, why did everybody go over there and kowtow? Why didn't they just say, you know what, Sunak, uh, you don't have any reason to call this, uh, you know, leave us alone. Yeah, it's a fair point. Um, so the UK is a really interesting case study in sort of like these governance visions and regimes. Uh, initially, the UK government under the current prime minister and the previous one were taking a bold stand to try to separate themselves from the European Union and also differentiate themselves from the United States and to explain to the world's innovators why more people should flock to England as a sort of hub of innovation in the AI arena. Um, and so they came up with some very exciting reports last year and this year talking about a new sort of pro-innovation framework for artificial intelligence and machine learning. And let's not forget, I mean, the UK has been the home of a lot of important encryption innovation going back, you know, to the time of World War II and Turing um, and Batchelor Park. And I mean, this this is a place that's, that's notable for computational innovation. And there are some brilliant people at some incredible research and university institutions in the UK. They could be a market leader. They already are a market leader in the financial sector, right? And so it sounded like a really exciting sort of like more permissionless innovation approach was emerging in the UK. And then the prime minister came and did a pretty hard turn towards the doomer perspective on AI and existential risk and came out with policy statements and appointed people that were taking a very gloom and doom approach that sounded like something pulled from the pages of dystopian science fiction novels and television shows and started this AI safety summit effort and try to get a bunch of companies to sign off on a bunch of promises and then try to get the US to join the fold and Europeans. Turns out it didn't play out exactly as he hoped. And now they're back to trying to figure out how to like split the baby on this. But the bottom line is that the United States, because Joe Biden has, you know, unfortunately as president, his administration has taken more of a sort of gloom and doom approach and a very heavy handed regulatory kind of vision dominates the Biden administration's approach to AI. And so they were sort of like saying, hey, yeah, go for it, UK. We, we kind of like the sound of what you're doing and we can't get what we want done over here in our Congress. So maybe you can do a little bit for us. And, you know, I blasted them pretty hard for that, the Biden administration, that is, because, I mean, that was basically ceding a little bit of our sovereignty to a foreign government to like regulate our best and brightest, you know, innovators. <laughs> that is not a good strategy for the United States if we care about global competition and geopolitical standing. And yet here we are uh, right now. And I'm glad that it really didn't yield much of, uh, of importance and especially the danger that uh, was on the table of a full-blown international regulatory body for artificial intelligence. I don't even know what that would have entailed or how it would have worked, I know. but I'm glad it's no longer really on the table. It would have been a, an unmitigated disaster for the United States and our sovereignty. Right. I mean, it's not as if the UN is a smashing success. Right. The idea that you're it's not only that, but let's be clear that it's a danger to have that sort of an international regulatory edifice. I, I'll just remind everybody this one anecdote, and I have several. I wrote a whole paper about sort of AI existential risks and some of the bogus claims, but we have 
past international frameworks for controlling various types of risky technologies. Uh, nuclear is the most prominent one, but but how about biological weapons? In 1972, about 50 years ago, the United States government negotiated with many other nations of the world a full-blown biological weapons convention, the BWC, and signed off on it to basically take off the table any further development of biological weapon capabilities. Completely understandable because this is horrific stuff. The problem is, is that a bunch of countries signed on to this, including the Soviet Union and the USSR delegates promptly went right back to Moscow. And as soon as they got the sign off that America wouldn't develop anymore, the Soviets ordered their scientists to double down on biological weapon production. And when the wall fell and we went in there and got hold of the paperwork, we found this out and realized that they had cheated on everything. But it wasn't just them. There were many, many other nations, including ones that are our allies, that sort of signed off on it or didn't even bother showing up and went ahead doing these things. The point of that story is that if we were to apply that model to artificial intelligence, the United States would not only be shooting ourselves in the foot in terms of geo, you know, global competition, we would be hurting our geopolitical standing and our security and safety as a nation. We should absolutely be having the ability to develop the same capabilities that our adversaries might develop. doesn't mean we shouldn't control them and be careful about them. But we can't give up and do these crazy ideas like let's pause all AI development or just stop the development on these on these theoretical risks. We cannot take that path as a nation. That is an absolute no. So what's let's talk a little bit about the Biden executive order. Um, you know, hopefully we'll have enough time to talk about some of your thinking around FDA and healthcare. And I know Ewan wants to jump back in again, but the Biden executive order. Um, I read it. I'm like, these guys are all about controlling innovation in the private sector in a number of different areas. <clears throat> and they're really embracing the precautionary principle. They seemed to me also, it looked somewhat coordinated with the media around the gloom and doom. Some of this can take on a life of its own and be symbiotic. The administration responds to the media, the media keys off and it's sort of become this feeding frenzy. But you know, a year ago, 18 months ago, were people waking up in the middle of the night going, oh, my God, AI is going to, you know, I'm going to have a cyborg crash through my breakfast uh, window and start eating my Cheerios when I'm sitting here. All of a sudden, all hell breaks loose with this executive order. Can you explain this and what is going on with suddenly the doom and gloom wave that has taken over, which normally doesn't happen in the United States, correct? Normally, we see a new technology, we get fired up about it like, sweet. Let's go after this. Let's own it. Let's lead the world. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, uh, I, I think there are some counterexamples. I mean, uh, well, we did start off by being very enthusiastic about nuclear energy and even supporting it, promoting it, actively trying to develop, and then took a hard turn in the 70s against it and went the exact opposite direction and became very heavy-handed about it. And that's my fear with AI, is that it follows in that same model as a dual-use general-purpose technology. You know, we could go two different directions here. And the Biden administration tries to have it both ways and say, we believe in AI and we want to promote it. But then it comes out with things like it did last year, the so-called AI Bill of Rights. And then it comes out with this new executive order and a lot of other statements in between that are just dripping with dystopian dread on every page. I mean, if you go and look at the, the Biden Bill of Rights, it opens up with just two or three lines that basically say AI is going to violate our rights. It's going to undermine our safety. It's going to hurt our security. It's going to you know hurt our children. I mean, oh, but it could be good for other things. <laughs> it's like the benefits are sort of like an afterthought. 
Um, and what the executive order does is it tries to get more concrete about how to take that rhetoric or that vision and to expand it. And it's also, it's Joe Biden taking advantage of the fact that, as I mentioned already, alluded to the fact that Congress is completely dysfunctional and seemingly incapable of moving anything itself or overseeing the agencies it's created and delegated such broad authority to. And so Joe Biden says, great. So what I'm going to do now as president is I'm going to give those agencies and their commissioners a green light and tell the regulators sort of like, go for it, get really active on this space. And many agencies have already done this before the executive order. The, the Federal Trade Commission, the EEOC, the FDA, the, F, uh, the, the DOT, many other agencies have been very, very active in this space. But now this 111-page executive order basically says, you know what, take it and run with it. You know, Go and out there and try to figure out how to do even more to protect rights broadly. And, you know, who's against, you know, nobody's against protecting rights, but the problem is with the way that the Biden administration reads it, everything's a rights violation under the algorithmic sun. Everything is, again, guilty until proven innocent. It's just nothing but but harms and dangers. And so in my last book, when I talked about the problem with the precautionary principle as the baseline default for public policy, I said it this way. I said, if you make hypothetical worst case scenarios, the basis of all public policy, then many best case scenarios can never come about because it's only through trial and error. It's only through experimentation and the learning process that that involves that you get progress and prosperity. This is the secret sauce behind the United States innovation power. We have allowed for more trial and error experiments than other nations. We have allowed innovators to get a fair shake and a green light and a chance to prove themselves without being guilty up front and having to get somebody's blessing before it gets to the market. Because if that's the model, you're talking about not just months, not just years, but sometimes decades of delay for important new innovations to get to market. And this is the European you know, uh, problem. They have that framework and nothing can get off the ground. And when it can, we live in a world of global innovation arbitrage. The innovators and the investors flee. They go to wherever they're treated most hospitably. And for the last quarter century, that's been the United States because we chose the right innovation culture. And the, the risk of the Biden administration's executive order and its policy statements is that it's turning the corner and now about to put AI into what I call the innovation cage. It's going to put it in there, lock it up and say, if you want out, you're going to have to ask for somebody's blessing to get a little permission slip to come out and do some narrow things here and there. And maybe we'll allow it if you prove preemptively, there can be no dangers or risks. Well, nobody can prove that. You can't prove that preemptively. There will always be dangers and risks to every new technology. And so if that's your regulatory approach, you won't get any innovation. And that's the danger with where we stand with the Biden executive order. So, Adam, in this period of time where there is still a license and liberty in the Innovation Center, talk, if you could, a little bit about the application of AI in healthcare broadly and where you think that could go here in the next several years that could be of assistance and encouragement and help in a, a pretty tough public policy space, as well as the lives of every individual American. Absolutely. Well, well, I'm, thank you for asking that, because this is what I'm most excited about, but also most concerned about us getting wrong. So l- let me just tell you a quick story. Uh, last year, I served as a commissioner on the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's AI Commission, a Blue Ribbon Commission put together with 11 experts who went around the nation talking to various experts and scientists. And one of our field trips, we went to the Cleveland Clinic. 
and we talked to various doctors, nurses, scientists, and others. And we, we heard from the head of the Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Uh, Tom Mihilovich, to kick off the day. And he had this amazing story about when he was uh, studying to be a doctor in the mid-1980s. He said that the overall corpus of medical knowledge, overall volume of medical knowledge out there was doubling roughly every seven years. That's pretty fast, uh, the doubling of medical information every seven years. He said, we were struggling to keep up, but we kind of keep up as doctors, nurses, and scientists. He said, today, by contrast, the overall corpus, the overall body of medical knowledge and information is doubling every 77 days. So we've moved from a doubling of medical information in the 1980s of seven years, roughly, to now around 77 days. That's incredible. And what Dr. Mihilovich pointed out is the only way for humanity to take advantage of all of that knowledge is through the power of machine learning. And that's what they're doing at the Cleveland Clinic. That's what they're also doing at the Mayo Clinic and Cedars-Sinai and all these other research centers. We're utilizing new digital technologies, algorithmic and computational technologies, and the power of machine learning to have a sort of symbiotic relationship develop between doctors, scientists, nurses, and so on, and machine technologies to figure out how to better treat patients and improve the needle on public health. And that's really the most exciting thing of all, because then you think about concrete applications. How could this solve cancers? You know, over 600,000 people died of cancer last year. Um, how do we start addressing them preemptively, diagnosing them better? How do you deal with uh, early onset mental uh, debil debilitative uh, de diseases? How do you deal with various types of uh, heart attacks and, and strokes? And this is exactly what scientists are using AI to do because it can better inform their judgments and their treatments and, and come up with better approaches to, to solving these chronic problems for the United States. I mean, we've had for 50 years now, since, United, uh, since the Nixon administration declared a so-called war on cancer, an effort underway at the federal level to deal with this. And under Obama and Biden, we doubled down on moonshots for cancer. The reality is we're not moving the needle enough on this. And so this is where AI has its greatest promise. But then we have the law. We have the Food and Drug Administration and an approach to uh, drug and medical device approval in particular that is very, very risk averse, very, very slow. And to the FDA's credit, they have even admitted that this is a problem. They have acknowledged that they have to change their approach to at least medical device approval because there's so much algorithmic innovation happening in that space. And so now there's a major proceeding underway at the FDA. It's called the, it's kind of a mouthful, the PCCP, the Predetermined Change Control Plan. And there's a whole host of other uh, so-called digital health initiatives underway. And the FDA is trying to figure out, like, how do we deal with all the stuff that's flying at us? How do we come up with a more flexible approach? And even though I've been a longstanding critic of the FDA and its approach, I'll give them some credit for at least acknowledging the problem. Now, whether their particular new proposals will solve it, is a totally different question and one that I have to think we're going to wait and see what happens here in coming years. Yeah, I'm with you on deep skepticism on FDA, just their culture, their ability to say, uh, we'll take regulatory discretion or even ask Congress to, to relieve us of the burden in certain instances. I mean, it, you know, just look at the Apple Watch um, controversies around monitoring for uh, arrhythmia and all this stuff that they went through in the past. And plus, I don't know about the expertise they're going to have, right? The, 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 the level of knowledge that it takes to get up to speed technically on artificial intelligence and understand they're really, if they want to regulate in this space, it's going to have to be super light touch in order to just 
ask for some level of transparency about how was this model constructed? What's the size of the database, perhaps? How does it update? And allow it to continue to add knowledge into it, right? To be able to scan the medical journals, the medical records, all these things, and add into the database. If they're going to sit there and say, we're going to need to see a file that's, that's static, I think we're totally screwed in this area. And to your point, um, it, not only is it, the, is it the future as far as harnessing that knowledge, but there's got to be cost savings. I mean, we are not saving any money in healthcare. If we figured out how to harness AI in order to bring costs down and made that a focus, I mean, I can just see the government, like these massive budget increases they're going to ask ask for in order to build the expertise, in order to regulate in this space, when they, they should be thinking the opposite. We don't have the expertise. We need to take a light touch. We need to embrace permissionless innovation. Um and and have some deference to industry here and and the innovators because there's no way they can ever build up fast enough to stay one step from the end. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, so you're right about a couple things there. First of all, risk averse culture dominates the Food and Drug Administration. Always has, always will. Uh, they want to do anything in their power to prevent like the worst case scenario from developing, and so they they act upon that impulse, and they're very very cautious about you know approving things. Um, second problem is one I've already identified and that you just alluded to again. It's the pacing problem. The fact that these technologies you know, evolve very, very fast, sometimes exponentially. Um, the FDA, uh, you know, people realize the FDA has been looking into these issues since 1981. They had a task force on computers and software as medical devices. And then it changed to computerized medical devices. And they, they use different nomenclature, different terms throughout the years. Uh, it evolved to uh, the Internet of Things and medical devices. And then software as a medical device is the operative term that's been utilized recently. Digital health is the broad umbrella, umbrella term. But now they're utilizing the term uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning software as a medical device. And they have an action plan under that name. And uh, it's led to this vision that uh, is, again, it, there's like a kernel of something really interesting and innovative here for a regulator, but it's also got some issues. And this idea of what they've got with the predetermined change control plan is to say, like, look, we know we can't handle everything that's flying at us. We know innovators can't come to us and try to, like, figure out, like, every iteration gets a new permission slip. So how about this, they said. How about when you come to us, you come to us with a plan as an algorithmic medical device innovator, and you tell us how you imagine your software, your algorithm might change in the future and how it might be utilized to do other interesting things. And we'll try to pre-approve this so you don't have to come back to us again and again and again. Well, that's interesting. That's, a, you know, they're thinking outside the box. The problem is nobody has a crystal ball to look into the future and say, well, here's exactly how my algorithm and my system is going to use. I mean, it'd be used in the future. The reality is, is that algorithmic technologies, the, the power of them about machine learning is that it's the real-time learning. And the real-time learning then finds serendipitous new data discovery and, and innovations in the process that yield new science, new results, new technolo technological capabilities. And so you can't predict all of that. Moreover, even if you could predict it, would you want to put it on paper and share it with the world when that might be the only intellectual property that you have? You're giving away your trade secret. Like, here's how I think my software is going to be used in five years. Here's the whole blueprint for it. And you just hand that over to the world. <laughs> I don't think so. That's not a good idea from a business perspective. And so what does that leave us with? I think what that leaves us with is an environment where the FDA starts to lean more heavily on best practices and transparency approaches 
where they basically say like, look, come up with a set of best practices, many of which the FDA has either already devised themselves or signed off on industry best practices. We'll give them a general blessing and encourage people to adhere to those best practices. And then secondly, try to be somewhat more transparent about your algorithmic technologies, the so-called black box problem. Like, well, how does this thing work? What's going on behind it? Now, the problem with that idea is I like it because transparency is an, an easier approach than, say, heavy-handed regulation, you know, if we're just re- divulging information about how a system works. But again, you got to be careful not to cross a line with regards to intellectual property or trade secrets or cybersecurity. You can't be giving away so much information to the FDA or to the public that you allow people to know how to rig your system or defeat it. Uh, and so it's a really tricky balance to walk, but I think that is the future. I think best practices married up with some sort of algorithmic transparency. There's even the idea out there, and I've written critically of this, but there could be some merit to it, of algorithmic or AI audits. The idea that like you develop a product, you put it on the market according to some best industry best practices, but then every once in a while, you audit that system to make sure it's doing what it promises to do and is not creating risks in the process. And that's not a bad idea. We have audits in many other different contexts, and they are important. But when you mandate an audit, and then you have a government dictate everything that's in an audit, or worse yet, you have a government regulator be the auditor, then you're asking for some trouble. And so there's got to be a happy middle ground there of utilizing transparency and sort of like impact assessments and audits to probably find a way to address algorithmic risks, but in a more flexible, agile, and iterative fashion without having the heavy-handed regulatory baggage that the FDA is always throwing at these innovators of prior approval for everything and anything under the sun. So something's got to give. The FDA acknowledges it, but they're just very slow to getting to what they're ultimately going to have to do if they want to keep innovation moving. Well, Adam, we really appreciate that. And we appreciate this deep and rich conversation here on this episode of DCEKG. We hope we can have you back. There's a lot more to discuss in this area. We know your expertise would be incredibly welcome. Absolutely. Our guest today has been Adam Thier, Rhymes with Beer. Look for all his publications, really important contributions in this area. We thank our sponsor, www.survivorsforsolutions.org, Big Wig Media, Evergreen, our distributor, Riverside, our production platform, our producer, John Swartaki, our assistant producer, Eli Levy. For DCEKG and host Joe Grogan, I'm Eric Ewan. Thanks for listening. We'll be talking.